listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belabored number 56. To start off our news roundup, the New York Times is reporting that workers at the Metropolitan Opera are embroiled in tense labor talks. 15 of the 16 unions will see their contracts expire in the coming weeks, and many of the workers are concerned uh, about pay cuts that the company is asking for, um, uh, supposedly because um, the whole company has been suffering from shrinking revenues. Um, What the workers are saying is that uh, what they're demanding in terms of concessions is unfair. Um, That's going to lead to 16 to 17 percent. Uh, pay cuts for many of the workers, and it's going to change the work rules that have been governing how uh, their labor is used, uh, whether they're performing on stage or off. Um, and it's actually a remarkable kind of uh, ins- window into what's going on in the arts world in terms of who's funding what, how these once-vaunted institutions are kind of struggling right now, and what it says about the relationship between um, artists, who are in fact laborers, right, and uh, and the management. And many people are accusing the management of, of making poor management decisions and squandering a lot of the funds, and, and they're making the workers pay for that now. And so what they're doing is they're not actually cutting, asking for pay cuts per se, they're changing the work rules so that their take-home pay is mm-hmm. diminished, which is sort of a classic, you know, backhanded move. But it is affecting everyone from, you know, the technicians who work backstage to the chorus, right? And so it's an interesting bit of solidarity. So you see workers from the entire company, from all different sectors, coming together and pressing for not only improved working conditions, but a, a greater say in this institution that they're all in, really invested in. And, and it's a cultural institution that we should all care about. And so when we think about public arts, right? Um, we should also think about it as a labor issue as well. Long-time belabored listeners will know that I have a little bit of an obsession with port truck drivers, and this week, those port truck drivers, specifically at the twin ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach, are escalating in a big way. They've gone on previous one-day unfair labor practice strikes And this week, they are on their first indefinite strike, which is, that's right, they've been on strike since Monday, they don't know when they're going back, and they say they're not going back until the bosses give in. These are drivers at TTSI, Pac-9, Greenfleet Systems. They haul imports for companies like Walmart, Home Depot, Skechers Shoes. And if they stop doing that work, it slows down a lot of things. So I've got a sound clip for you from trucker Alex Pass on why the port truck drivers are on strike and what their demands are. Yeah, my name is Alex Pass. I'm, I'm a port truck driver for TTSI. Well, ex-port truck driver, I was fired by them. You guys will know a little bit more of what happened. I'm one of the hundred uh, port truck drivers who has filed claims for the uh, for wages and theft with the California Division of, of Labor Standard Enforcement. And when I testified before the government, my boss was in the room and he fired me days later after I testified with the labor board. He fired me. That's not right. Uh, that's illegal. But I'm not the only one. The bosses at Greenfleet, Pac-9, and dozens of other companies are also retaliating harshly and repeatedly when we as poor truck drivers are standing up for our rights. We won't back down. We're done. We have come out of the shadows, and we're, we're staying out here until the industry changes, until they stop breaking the law, until they stop firing us, stop harassing us, stop trying to intimidate us. Over at Greenfleet, the company agents even threaten supporters with death threats. No one should have to put up with, these, with treatments like that, and our, and our days are rolling over our history. We've been on strike before, so what's different today? 
It's only been five hours we've been on strike, but today is not business as usual. The marine terminals have told, have told our employers that they are not, not welcome on the docks until the labor dispute. Evergreen, one of the biggest terminals, for the first time refusing to allow Greenfleet, PAC-9, and TTSI illegal, uh, to stop the illegal business practice into the backyard. We are not going away. What's the difference today? Our employers are shut down. This means that all drivers at our companies are idle. This is nothing like we ever seen before. Last time the companies went, th went through the motion and pretending that last time the company said the action didn't really matter and didn't really have an impact. Clearly today we proved everyone wrong. I've learned that, I've learned that, that we keep fighting, we keep moving forward and we will, and we will win. And that was Alex Paz. He's a port truck driver at the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach in California, and they are on strike. And from the ports of Long Beach to the coast of Greece. Um, Greece is once again on fire with labor unrest. While we saw many protests erupting uh, at the height of the Great Recession, uh, you might have heard from some financial reporters that Greece has sort of calmed down now, that it's getting back to stability, that the economy is finally bouncing back, that they've implemented those tough austerity measures and sort of uh, ironed out all the kinks. But actually, public sector unions uh, have gone on strike in the past few days. And uh, one of the biggest labor actions that we've seen recently is the electric workers, the electricity workers union called a strike. It was ruled illegal. And in a somewhat novel move, um, you actually had the court kind of conscripting labor, um, basically ordering them to go back to work or else, right? And so, you know, not only does that raise questions about <laughs> the rights of workers when a court can order them to go back to work and all sorts of other things like that, but, um, you know, how easily a strike can be ruled illegal and how the workers still come out in the end. Public sector workers were sort of marching in lockstep with these electric uh, union workers, and they are sort of sounding an alarm bell to say that, you know, even though the numbers coming out of Greece might look a little more stable than they were when the economy was in a total free-for-all, things are by no means in recovery for the everyday rank-and-file workers who are there. And frankly, the, the main reason the electric workers were out in the street was because they were protesting the partial privatization of a major sector of the economy, and that is directly a consequence of the IMF austerity measures that were imposed on them. And so Greece will be living with uh, these austerity measures for years and years, and we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg in terms of what it's going to mean in the long time, not only for public sector workers, but for, for labor rights in general over there. Um, so if the economy does rebound, it's going to be on the backs of everyday workers. And speaking of everyday workers, which we do all the time here on Belabored, last week the Supreme Court handed down the decision in the case of Harris versus Quinn. It was a decision um, that imposed essentially right to work on home health care workers. And so this week, in not exactly defiance of the Supreme Court, but certainly in a uh, defiant response to this attack on home care workers' union rights, Home care workers in Minnesota are delivered their union cards this Tuesday to trigger what will be the largest union election in Minnesota history. This is thousands of home health care workers who are saying they want a union. And to tell us a little bit more about that, we've got Summer Spica, who is one of the home health care aides who filed for union recognition yesterday. I've worked as a home care worker for almost six years now, and it's my full-time job. 
I have no benefits of any sort, no sick time, no vacation time, no health insurance through my job. Again, I work a full-time job, and I have to get health insurance to the state for myself and my family. I have had to get food stamps at times just to put food on the table. And, you know, I just feel like I needed to do something to change that. Nobody should work a full-time job and still not be able to provide for their families. So initially, you know, it was to help create a better life for myself and my family. And then as I got involved in the process of forming the union, like two, two and a half years ago, I started hearing stories of other home care workers who had to quit their full-time jobs to take care of family members. You know, they they left jobs making $80,000 a year, and now as a home care worker, they're in the same position I'm in, working a full-time job, or sometimes, you know, only getting paid. It's a full-time job, but only getting paid for, you know, maybe 10 hours a week for taking care of somebody, even though that person needs full-time care. Now, you know, it's become more about not just myself, but those stories as well. You know, people just really struggling to keep their families at home. So they're taken care of with love and dignity. You know, it saves the state a ton of money. They're not in institutions. They're not having 24-hour care. You know, now it's become a much bigger (laughs) picture for me. You know, it's just so important. And to be able to take better care of our clients. We have no, I mean, again, I've been doing this six years. I've not once had CPR training or first aid training. You know, this is a healthcare job. We should have those things, and I should be able to be trained in how to take care of my clients the best way possible. You know, those are just some of the reasons why I think it's important that we have a union. We have no voice, and we need to make sure that we have a voice, and I believe that a union will help give us that. In terms of what the Supreme Court just ruled about home care workers, that your partial public employees, how did that make you feel? I honestly don't understand all the ins and outs of of the Supreme Court ruling. What I do understand is that it reaffirmed our right to form a union. It reaffirmed our right to collectively bargain that, you know, what it comes down to it is that we are not able to collect a fair share wage from home care workers that don't want to be part of that union. As far as I'm concerned, in Minnesota, we have overwhelming support from home care workers, and it's not going to stop us. We're going to continue to move forward and fight for better life for ourselves and our families, and most importantly, our clients. How long have you been campaigning for a union, and what are some of the challenges you've faced in terms of organizing your fellow workers? Well, I have been involved in the process for, like I said, about two and a half years. The first initial challenge we had is that in Minnesota, we did not have the right to choose to form a union. So we had to go to the legislature and get a bill passed that gave us the right to form a union. So that was our first obstacle. It was a huge challenge. We spent endless hours at the Capitol. Um, at the end of it, we literally slept on the Capitol floor. I had a young baby that I put on my hip and brought with me every week to the Capitol to talk to people to testify in hearings. And it was a huge challenge, but we did it and we got that passed. And then, you know, one of the other obstacles that we had is this is a very isolated job. We're going into people's homes and doing work. We don't go to a job where we're sitting in the break room and we all can talk about, you know, the struggles that we're having together. We we don't know these struggles. 
and and we didn't know how many home care workers were even in Minnesota until we got that bill passed and then decided to go forward with trying to have an election. And that's when the state, you know, finally looked to see, oh, wow, I don't know, maybe we thought there was maybe like 12,000 home care workers. Well, there's over 26,000 home care workers. So um, trying to reach 26,000 people all across Minnesota was a bit of a challenge, but we did it. We had to get 30% of the home care workers in Minnesota to say that they had interest in forming a union in order to go through with their election. And that was a challenge, but again, every challenge that we've come to, we've, we have gotten through and we did that and now we're on our way. And that was Summer Speaker. She is currently uh, organizing a home healthcare workers union in Minnesota. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And bouncing off of that, we're going to go back to Harris Quinn and look at some of the uh, legal nitty-gritty behind the decision. Benjamin Sachs is the Kestenbaum Professor of Labor and Industry at Harvard Law School, and he spoke to us by Skype about what the ramifications of Harris v. Quinn are, not only for public sector workers, but for low-wage workers in general. So the Harris v. Quinn decision, obviously, it wasn't as bad as it could have been in that it could have affected many more workers but it will undeniably have an effect on some of the poorest and most vulnerable workers in the country. Um, Do you think the court is sort of laying a stepping stone for actually taking away or actually going full right to work in the public sector? Or is this decision kind of a consequence of conservatives like Alito not thinking of home care as real work? It's difficult to predict or anticipate what the Supreme Court will or won't do uh, in the future. The the way this opinion was written, a little unusual uh, and, you know, raises some questions, I think, which are um, implied by what you just asked. So the holding of the case is uh, narrow in the sense that um, what the case actually holds is that these home care workers uh, are not full-fledged public employees. That's the, that's the court's words. Um and um, that distinguishes them from the kinds of employees covered by the court's longstanding uh, union dues uh, precedents. That's that's the holding. And so um, the normal rule that we apply in the in the public sector, which is that uh, employees can be required to pay a fair share for union representation, doesn't apply uh, in this specific home care context. That's a narrow holding. It's a pretty straightforward one. In my view, it's wrong. Um, but then we get pages and pages uh, of the Supreme Court of the United States telling us why um, the basic uh, doctrine, the, the Abood case, the basic rule concerning uh, dues payments in the public sector, why that um, line of precedent is, as the court says, anomalous. Um, and problematic for a whole host of reasons which which they lay out. So why would the court do that? Um, one possibility is there just aren't five votes on the U.S. Supreme Court right now to um, uh, overturn a boot, which is, as you, as you say, would Im- essentially impose right to work on all the public sector and prohibit fair share agreements anywhere in the public sector. So maybe there just aren't five votes for that. 
and all of this discussion of the problems of a boot or, or you know what lawyers would call dicta that is to say not not binding precedent another possibility uh, a sort of a bleaker one for the union movement one which my colleague and co-blogger jack goldsmith has suggested on our blog is that Harris versus Quinn is a kind of a first step, or probably a second step, if we consider Knox versus SEIU, in you know what we could call killing uh, Abood uh, or 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 uh, letting Abood die a death of a thousand cuts. So um, you know we will never get, we may never get the sort of um, bombshell opinion uh, which says you know Abood is hereby overruled. Uh, instead, what we'll get is a lot of opinions like Knox and Harris, which says Abood doesn't apply here, it doesn't apply there, uh, it doesn't reach this group of workers, it doesn't reach that group of workers. You know, if that's the case, uh, you know, then um, you know there's uh, you know a lot to fear about about the future. I should say that a bleaker possibility, entirely plausible one, uh, is that you know in the next case, <laughs> the Supreme Court will simply overrule Abood. Um, and, you know, why they didn't do it in Harris would be something of a puzzle. Um, you know, maybe uh, Justice Kagan talked them out of it. You know, she wrote a phenomenally good and strong uh, dissent. Um, and, you know, maybe she talked them out of it in this context and wouldn't be able to in the next one. Um, but, you know, as I've, as I've said before, you know, as with so many things, a lot of the future will turn on who's on the Supreme Court uh, when the next uh, case comes up. So the ruling um, seemed to turn on this designation that Alito, I don't know if he invented it really, but uh, he referred to them as partial public employees, the home care workers um, at the center of the case. And I was wondering if you could parse that language a little bit more. What does it mean to create this special sort of carve out for this particular section of the public sector? Um, and how does that relate to, um, you know, what we might call a that, that joint employer relationship where you have the consumer acting in a, a semi-supervisory role, but the state is the employer of record? Yeah. So the, the court below, uh, the Court of Appeals here had, had held, as your question points to, um, that what we had in the Illinois home care program was a joint uh, employment relationship in which the state was an employer and the, um, the consumer uh, was also uh, uh, an employer. That's a very traditional concept across uh, labor and employment law. And, you know, the basic idea is um, both uh, entities or, or here the individual and the state um, have uh, employment uh, employer-like uh, responsibilities and um, therefore can both be treated as uh, employers. What the what the Supreme Court says um, in uh, Harris versus Quinn is that what they call the customer, the individuals receiving home care, um, exercise sort of uh, such a significant degree of control over uh, the home care worker and the state by contract by contrast, exercises s such a small degree uh, of control um, that um, this is not a, a typical um, public employment relationship. Um, now, you know, why does any of that matter? Well, it matters because the court then goes on to say um, Abood applies only to full-fledged public em employees. Um, why is that? Well, that's because... <laughs> 
Um, what the court says is that in order for Abood to make sense, um, you know, the union has to have a lot to bargain about. Um, there has to be this risk uh, that the union is going to sacrifice the interests of non-members to members. Um, and that Abood's uh, rationale, uh, they say, is based on the assumption that the union possesses sort of the full scope of powers and duties generally available under American law. Because they don't see that in the Illinois program, because they see the customer controlling so much and the state controlling so little, and therefore the union having so little to bargain about, they say that Abood doesn't apply. Now, in my view, that analysis is wrong in about seven ways. Um, you know, I think it's wrong on the facts. So, as again, Justice po Kagan points out in dissent, um, the union has lots to bargain about in Illinois. Um, the um, state controls a great deal uh, of the employment relationship. It wasn't just Justice Kagan that thought that. It was the Court of Appeals that thought that. It's also wrong to say that there's little risk of the union sacrificing the interests of non-members to members. So um, in my view, the court's analysis is wrong, um, but you know, it's clear why they engage in that analysis. They're, uh, they're trying to make the argument, they've, they've made the argument, um, uh, they've reached a holding based on it, that the work relationship between the state and the home care workers in Illinois is different enough from the kind of work relationships that were at issue in cases like Abood, that they think Abood uh, should not apply. You know, whether we've now, whether we now have a, a new category of public employment relationships that, you know, so we have full-fledged, as the court says, and, um, and not full-fledged, and whether that uh, uh, binary will sort of migrate to other areas of labor employment law, I guess, remains to be seen. But um, you know, it, it, you can see what, what work it's doing in this context. Right. Well, it does seem like it sort of um, cracks open the door, I guess, in some ways to creating this system in which we have sort of a partially privatized public sector workforce. So that would inherently create some problems, I guess, going down the line if you want to have future litigation. Yeah. So, you know, the, I mean, it's interesting that I think we could see sort of perverse incentives that that the rule and the distinction creates. One of them is, um, you know, we absolutely want uh, consumers, customers, individuals receiving home care. We want them to exercise control over the personal care assistance uh, that are providing them care. You know, it, it would be a, I think, a, a bad program um, if the state exercised complete control. But Harris versus Quinn says, you know, to the state, if you want to um, dictate the way your your home care program runs, you know, including things like whether you're going to have a union, whether there's going to be a fair share payment, how you're going to uh, negotiate with um, uh, the workers, if you want to be able to make those kinds of decisions, you kind of have to have complete control. Um, that's a system where nobody wins. Um, so I, I do see some uh, perverse incentives created by the rule. You know, in terms of other areas of public sector employment where uh, this kind of distinction between full-fledged and not full-fledged employees um, seems uh, 
clearest, it would be childcare. Um, you know, where, where the, we have similar kinds of uh, joint employment relationships, which now, you know, I think may no longer qualify uh, as, as joint employment. Right. Which is incidentally for, another, you know, the, the workforce there demographically looks quite similar to the one in home health care. So. Yes, it does. Which, which leads directly to our next question. The ruling that home care workers are partial public employees or partial workers echoes a long history of excluding domestic workers um, from labor protections. And of course, that has gendered and racialized roots. Um, domestic workers were excluded from New Deal labor protections because they were mostly black women workers. And there's a long history of assuming that work done in the home by women is not real work. Can you talk about how this ruling connects to that history and how it codifies another form of exclusion for this workforce? Only to say that you're absolutely correct that um, I, I would say at a minimum, the majority's opinion um, resonates with that history. That is to say, it um, it continues uh, a history in which domestic work is classified legally as less than real or less than uh, legitimate uh, work. Um, and you know, even the language that the court uses, um, you know, there are full-fledged employees, and then there this other there is this other class of employees that's doing something else absolutely resonates with that history. Not being a, a professional Supreme Court watcher, I'm, I'm, I want to be careful about, uh, or, or, or I'm just not equipped to say, uh, you know, what Justice Alito's um, uh, jurisprudence looks like across, well, you know, all areas of law. He clearly uh, has strong views about unions. Right. Um, and it may well be that the motivation for this uh, decision is overdetermined, but what he wrote in Knox, um, what he wrote in Harris, um, what he said at oral arguments uh, makes it clear that he has very strong views about um, unions and the, and the legal standing of unions. He's not alone. We had another uh, Supreme Court case this term um, about, about labor unions that was equally as important as Harris, and that was a case called Mulhall. Um, no one talks about Mulhall anymore because it fizzled, um, but Mulhall was about the legality of, of um, private organizing agreements. So when a union and employer decide to restructure the rules of union organizing in a way that's more facilitative of, of employee choice, th that's a, uh, been an incredibly important um, tool for private sector union organizing. And the Supreme Court took a case uh, called Mulhall that uh, attacked the legality of those kinds of of agreements. And you know, at, at the oral argument in that case, you know, the chief justice said some things about card check recognition that were, you know, just demonstrably hostile to that um, that form of of union organizing. So there are uh, a, a good number of people on this court who, you know, I think maybe for the, for the first time in the last five, 10 years, uh, who are actually quite interested in labor law uh, and quite interested in you know, dismantling some of the protections for unions and unionization that are left. You know, what an interesting component of the Harris case, as has been remarked, was that um, J 
Justice Scalia seemed <laughs> relatively more um, sympathetic to the union position, uh, at least at oral argument. Yeah. But, you know, I think the author of this case, um, Justice Alito, has strong views about about unions and labor law um, and is is interested in uh, reshaping the law in a direction that will be uh, very threatening to unions and workers, you know, in this case, absolutely domestic workers. But I think it's not limited to that class of employees or unions. Yeah, it was kind of funny. My running joke um, waiting to hear the decision was, let's just hope that Scalia hates free riders more than he hates unions. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> right, anyway. so, so, yes, going back to the first question we were talking about, about, you know, the structure of this opinion, there's a little bit of a mystery about what Justice Alito's views are. Um, you know, he at oral arguments seemed... Um, very uh, much inclined to um, reaffirm the, you know, the fair share cases, the Abood case, and uh, and very, um, you know, sort of not uh, receptive to the right to work committee's arguments about the flaws in in those cases. Now he joined this opinion. He joined uh, Knox versus SEIU, uh, and you know the question is, does he, you know, sort of is he on board with the narrow holdings of these cases, or is he on board with the uh, dicta? Um, if he's on board with the dicta, that would imply that there are five votes to overrule Abood. But the, and that's the mystery, and that's an important question. And Scalia is not known for holding his tongue when he is uh, in disagreement with his fellow justices, certainly. But I guess we won't know until he says something. But so... We did want to ask what this will mean for organizing among home care workers. I wonder if one of the possible consequences here is that unions um, that had been doing a lot of this work now are less interested in putting their organizing efforts into home care workers and that this falls more to non-union organizations like the National Domestic Workers Alliance. Right. So um, I, you know, my views on this, I think, May, may be slightly different than than others. You know, this is a bad decision. Right. This is um, this is a case that, in my view, was wrongly decided. I do not believe this is fatal to public sector unions um, generally, nor do I believe it is fatal to uh, home care organizing or child care organizing. And why do I say that? So, what does this case decide? This case decides. Um, that unions cannot collect dues from workers who don't want to pay them. Um, it doesn't mean that workers can't collect dues from workers who decide to pay them. That means that unions have to do a lot more work uh, convincing workers to pay dues. Um, that's doable. Um, you know, you, there is already... Uh, anecdotal evidence that AFSCME, one of the largest public sector unions, prior to Harris versus Quinn, decided um, to try to increase uh, the percentage of its dues collection that was coming voluntarily from members as opposed to through uh, these fair share agreements and that they've been very successful uh, in that effort. Now, everybody who, who critiques the decision and, and the rule of Harris versus Quinn as setting up a uh, uh, free rider problem for, for unions. That's absolutely right. But free rider problems aren't insurmountable. 
Right? They, you just have to convince people this is in your interest, in your collective interest, to pay these dues. My suspicion is that's exactly what unions are going to go out and try to do. I think there's some ways in which that work will make unions stronger. If they manage to succeed, right, that's the kind of internal union organizing that a lot of people have been saying uh, ha we need, that's been missing from the labor movement uh, for years, and that you know, in some respects, this decision is, is, a, is, a, is forcing unions to do that kind of internal uh, organizing uh, that that some of them um, have not been doing in recent years. Now, I, I don't mean to be naive uh, about this. Uh, again, overcoming free rider problems is extremely difficult. I think there will be contexts in which or unions for which um, this kind of rule would be fatal. That you know you can't operate on a on a right to work uh, kind of regime. But I, I think for some unions. Uh, and maybe for the strongest, most dynamic and energetic unions, uh, I think this will be a call uh, to increase internal organizing efforts and uh, do, you know, do what it takes to collect dues voluntarily from members. And just to be clear, from the legal perspective, all of that remains 100 percent legal. Like nothing that the Supreme Court has said or really could say would make unionization in the public sector illegal. The only issue is, can you require people who don't want to pay dues to pay them? I have some faith that unions will uh, respond with uh, innovation. Maybe uh, unions will learn from some of the things that the worker centers uh, and the sort of alt-labor uh, organizations have been doing in their efforts to increase these dues. And, you know, just to, to back it up, uh, you know, a little to be a little more general about this, the history of the labor movement is a history of dealing with hostile court decisions. From the inception of the American labor movement, unions have had to deal with incredibly hostile courts. They have a good track record of figuring out how to do that, and I have faith that they'll figure out how to, uh, how to adjust to this decision as well. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you brought that up because um, in the general response by a lot of um, labor leaders to the decision, a lot of them, well, I mean, at least uh, some strand was saying that this could be sort of a good kind of kick in the pants for, for labor unions who perhaps had um, come to take some of their memberships for granted. Um, but I was just wondering, I mean, we already know that we're dealing with um, – a sector that is historically hard to unionize, right? Um, for precisely some of these structural reasons that we talked about earlier, the fact that these are sort of quasi, you know, they're, it's a joint employer situation. Um, the individual consumers have a lot of uh, power to determine the individual, uh, you know, working conditions on, on some level. And most particularly, there's no shop floor. There's no yep. one workplace. It's like the union in question, the, the SEIU local that these home care workers in Illinois belong to, says it has 50,000 home care members. Um, trying to individually go to 50,000 workplaces to collect dues is seems like an incredible task. Right. And, and yet, on the other hand, you know, um, they, they, they did become... Uh, eligible for union certification with like the stroke of an executive order. So I mean, maybe there's there's some benefit to having a a, a public, um, you know, employer record there. But um, I guess I'm just wondering, do, do you see this perhaps um, creating as perhaps the the right to work movement uh, was intending, uh, creating kind of a wedge within the labor movement where some unions are advantaged in terms of how engaged they can ask their members to be, and others have a much harder time of it. 
Uh -huh. Yes. Yeah, so, so I guess I'd respond to that in two ways. Number one, it, there's no doubt that um, home care organizing is hard is hard work, and anytime we have a, a dispersed workforce um, and and dispersed workplaces, uh, the organizing gets uh, more difficult. Home care worker unions had to uh, build majority support among these workers before uh, certification was possible. Um, they did that. It's that kind of work that now has to go into the dues uh, um, collection efforts. Now, again, just to just to clarify, we're not talking about um, unions having to go door to door to collect dues every month, right? That's not what's required. What's required is unions getting um, home care workers uh, to sign up as full-fledged members and to pay dues voluntarily. Um, dues deduction can still occur through payroll deduction um, and under, under this decision. Um, it just has to be voluntary. Um, you know, even without payroll deduction, I should say, um, modern technology like bank draft and credit card and debit card um, makes, uh, you know, traditional payroll deduction less necessary. Still extremely helpful, uh, but less necessary. So that, that that's just a long way of saying um, you're absolutely right. This is difficult. Um, overcoming free riders is always difficult. It's even more difficult when you have a dispersed uh, workforce as you do in home care. Uh, but my point is these are not insurmountable problems. Whether, you know, whether this decision creates a wedge uh, within the labor movement, uh, that, you know, that's, that's, um, it's, it seems to me that the, if there's a if there's a wedge that exists as a result of the structure of these different industries and not as uh, a result of the legal rules regarding dues collection. But uh, but I see the point. Yes, yeah, sure. You know, I mean, I I can imagine a world uh, in which you know unions continue to uh, function where they can do a fair share and union shop agreements and not where they can't, and that you know brings us back to your earlier point about. Uh, domestic work, and and that's a plausible future and a, and a bleak one. And you know, m my hope is that uh, unions will rely on their store of innovation and energy and figure out how to overcome the the dues collection problem that Harris uh, imposes on them. Yeah, another aspect of this too is that uh, is the role that consumers have played um, in terms of the advocacy around the union rights of um, of the service of the care providers and. Um, I was wondering if you could reflect a little bit on the sort of peculiar, kind of triangular employment relationship and how it came to be that some of the strongest supporters of the union rights of these workers ended up being their consumers who are also sort of their bosses in a way. Um, you had a lot of disability rights activists coming out and saying, this is one way that we can actually, you know, guarantee a baseline of quality of care for us. And if you take that away, then that, that's weakening our access to care. Can you, can you talk about how the consumer community fits into this? From a legal perspective, I, I guess um, one thing that's notable is, is you know, the, the, um, there was an amicus brief, just a really terrific amicus brief filed by, um, I, I, I don't have it in front of me, but, but uh, I, I believe it was a coalition of disability rights groups. Um, on behalf of the unions, and and I, I think um, if I'm not mistaken, that that brief ends up, uh, which is somewhat unusual, getting cited uh, by the dissent 
uh, in in Harris versus Quinn. So from a from a from a legal perspective, you know, the contribution of that voice and that set of arguments, I think, was exceptionally important. I mean, on you know, unfortunately, it didn't it didn't. Um, there was still still weren't five votes, uh, but I I think it was um, I think it was an important a contribution and obviously had an influence on at least some uh, some members uh, of the court. From a you know from a slightly broader perspective, I think there is there's a narrative about unions in general, about healthcare uh, unions in particular, and maybe home care unions even more particularly, which is you know, this is about putting the interests of workers ahead of the interests of patients, clients, um, uh, consumers. And, you know, that turns out to be false. You know, unionization um, is uh, often associated with, um, you know, in very important gains in, in patient care. You know, I, when I teach uh, labor law, I, I go over some, some amendments to the uh, National Labor Relations Act, which which um, allowed um, certain healthcare workers to unionize, and and uh, the United States Congress made the point that unionization would improve patient care. Um, uh, that that was in the hospital context. Uh, I think you know you're pointing out that the same thing, the the uh, advocates you know were saying in the home care context. You know, essentially, we need uh, to do something about turnover. Um, and um, we need to stabilize uh, this industry and, um, you know, collective bargaining and um, is a way of doing that. And I think that turns out to be true. The way that the interests are aligned here is, you know, the interests of workers and, and consumers are furthered by, uh, by unionization. And, and um, I think that was made clear by the, by the brief that was filed. I think it's uh, probably um, a, a little bit lost in the, in the, public discourse about the case. Right. I mean, it's just so curious, like how seemingly kind of bizarre the alignments are here, because you had both the both employers, right, <laughs> the consumer and the state coming out in favor of the union, and you had the workers suing the union. So, well, right. <laughs> um, allegedly. Workers. Right, right. I mean, obviously, there's a, there's a sort of a legal masterstroke going on here, but um, it's just interesting. I, I hope that's uh, not completely lost in the public house. Right. And, you, I'm, you know, look, I made the point, so I obviously agree with it. Uh, you know, uh, to be fair, there's not unanimity uh, among you know consumers or workers, right? There are some consumers uh, who who don't want the union, who don't think it's in their interest. There are workers who don't want the union and don't think it's in their interest either. I think those are um, you know clearly the National Right to Work um, uh, Committee and, and Legal Foundation uh, is involved here, but I think there are you know genuinely held beliefs. Uh, among workers uh, and, and consumers that the union's not in their interest. Uh, you know, it turns out that we have a system, we generally have a system of majority rule, and, and that's critical uh, for, for a lot of reasons. And, um, you know, in a system of, of majority rule, sometimes, you know, the minority has to go along with what the majority decides in order for the, for the system to function. That's, you know, the basis of our political system. Um, and it's it, it, it has been the basis of our uh, of our labor law system. And, um, you know, I think we're seeing uh, in some ways the, the fraying of that uh, a little bit in 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 Harrison and the, the way the court is moving. So Harris came down the same day as the Hobby Lobby decision, which has gotten, I think, um, 
quite a bit more attention from the mainstream press. But I do think that the two decisions are related in a way, both mostly affecting women low wage workers, both impacting the pay and benefits that the workers get from their employers. Um, what do you think the Hobby Lobby decision will mean for these the insurance and other protections that workers get on the job? So there's there's so much in the Hobby Lobby uh, decision, um, and I think there's a lot to to criticize um, from a sort of a labor and employment perspective or a labor and employment law perspective. I think many many things are notable. Uh, let me just point out two of them. Um, there's a um, interesting question about what a corporation is and who's speaking. <laughs> Uh, when a corporation does something, who, if anyone, uh, is speaking. Um, Justice Ginsburg, in her dissent, uh, almost in passing, raises a very interesting point, which is the idea of a corporation is the separation of ownership and control. Um, we uh, allow people to set up corporations um, such that the, the corporate entity is distinct from uh, the person as an individual. That's the basis of limited liability. So if you set up a corporation, your own assets are no longer on the line because you're different than the corporation. And, you know, what the court does in Hobby Lobby is say, with respect to these kinds of um, uh, religious beliefs, the corporation is the individuals, at least in a closely held corporation, is the individuals who own it. That's worth a lot of thought uh, and and debate, and I think that that kind of um, understanding of the of the corporation has ramifications for a lot of areas of of labor and employment law. Um, more directly, more you know, obviously, um, we have a holding that says an employer's sincerely held uh, religious beliefs um, can form the basis for exceptions to generally applicable laws. Justice Ginsburg raises the question about what if an employer has a sincerely held religious belief that paying the minimum wage or paying women equally for substantially similar work is offensive, um, what then? And the more obvious example would be, suppose an employer has a religious uh, belief uh, that's offended by uh, same-sex marriage or same-sex couples or even employing people of a particular race. Now, as a matter of sort of formal legal doctrine, I think Hobby Lobby presents that threat. That is to say, if you take Hobby Lobby to a sort of uh, logical conclusion, it may be that the case points in the way of saying, uh, we're we're going to now see exceptions to Title VII and the rest uh, based on religious belief. As a matter of, of of pragmatics, I do not believe the U.S. Supreme Court will do that. Um, I I don't think that the Supreme Court is going to start allowing corporations, even closely held corporations, to uh, racially discriminate or discriminate against uh, uh, on the basis of gender or violate the Equal Pay Act or get exceptions from the minimum wage law by making the kinds of arguments that were successful in Hobby Lobby. 
I think the court would fear for its own legitimacy if it started doing that, given the social consensus around those kinds of protections. With respect to same-sex marriage, that's the one that makes me most nervous. Um, and, you know, again, I, I hesitate to predict. I, I would honestly be surprised if the court did a Hobby Lobby uh, on, on same-sex issues, uh, but, it, but it wouldn't shock me. And, and, and again, as a matter of formal legal doctrine, that is to say, if you were just going to look at the words of Hobby Lobby and say, could those apply in the race, gender, uh, or sexual orientation context, I think you'd have to say yes. I think it's also clear that the, the Supreme Court doesn't want to do that. And you know, even Justice Alito says at points in the opinion, that's not what we mean. And that was Benjamin Sachs, a uh, professor of law at Harvard Law School. And he was speaking on Harris v. Quinn. And he closed out a little bit with uh, with some thoughts on the Hobby Lobby ruling, which, as you and I have both written in the past <laughs> uh, few days, um, has gotten uh, a lot more attention, and perhaps deservedly so, because it is, you know, know perhaps though. broadly affecting, you know, a swath of... Um, but but as definitely as a feminist issue, um, I feel like the sort of uh, the, the Hobby Lobby kind of stole the thunder <laughs> from uh, yeah. Harris a little bit. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, this is a, an ongoing theme. Longtime listeners and readers of my work will hear once again here. I just feel like a lot of mainstream feminism these days is very disconnected from the workplace. So even the, the tons of coverage coming out your ears about Hobby Lobby that we've gotten... Very little of it has concentrated on this as a workplace issue. And one of the things that I think is really telling about that is that there's this viral photos going around of people going into Hobby Lobby stores and like rearranging the the child's blocks or whatever it is that Hobby Lobby sells. I don't (laughs) think I've ever actually been into a Hobby Lobby. I've been into like Michael's Craft Store, so I assume it's similar. Listeners, let me know. People are going into Hobby Lobby and sort of rearranging these letters to say pro-choice, which makes them feel really good and is just going to be have to be cleaned up by the very workers that the Supreme Court just screwed over. And right. I'm the ones whose health care you're trying right, to protect. Right, exactly. And just I, I you know, as as sort of meaningless consumer quasi activism goes, this is certainly not the worst. Um, leaving shopping carts full of merchandise at Walmart is much more annoying to me. Um, but it still speaks to the disconnect between this as an issue that affects a very specific group of workers. And granted, this case ends up affecting a very broad swath of American workers, but we're still very disconnected from it as a workplace issue. And we don't see conversations about feminism revolving around the workplace. And this is a thing that we try to fix in in Belabored. Slowly but surely we're getting there. Well, I mean, and and I think it's also a community issue too, right? Mm -hmm. Um, It's about how communities are organized and how, um, labor sees itself with as sees its role right in the community. I mean, if you just compare kind of the 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 uh, media hoopla around Hobby Lobby with um, some of the uh, grassroots um, you know messaging that was done by SEIU, I mean, the workers were out in front, right? They were right. talking about why we need a union, what it means, and they were alongside their consumers, right? right. They're the people they cared for. Right. So there was that kind of labor community connection right. where everyone felt like they were genuinely, I mean, on the same side in yeah. terms of what was beneficial, what was the most beneficial arrangement for everyone. Right. Um, and it was interesting because I, I thought, I wrote a piece about um, 
you know, uh, how collective bargaining is, is particularly important for low-wage women. Right. And then I, I, I tried to sort of, um, I, I thought about Hobby Lobby, and I was like, well, what would have happened if they had had, you know, a union at this, at Hobby Lobby right. with like a firm collective bargaining agreement or some kind of mechanism in yeah. place where, you know, maybe employees would have been able to raise a grievance about something like this. Yeah, right? I wonder, I really and do I, I emailed them, and I was like, is it, are Hobby Lobby employees represented by a union? And they said no. And I was like, right. okay, well. <laughs> right, right. Well, it's, it's interesting, too, because Hobby Lobby made news not that long ago for raising its wages um, for its still fairly low-wage workers. I think it was they raised it to like $14 an hour for full-timers and $9.50 an hour for part-timers, which still living on $9.50 part-time sucks. But, you know, $14 an hour is not that far from what a lot of the fast food and, and other low-wage worker movements are calling for. So... Yeah, when you, you see these disconnects, right, they, they clearly have some concern, at least that they be perceived as not being horrible to their employees. But in this particular case, again, this is just, it's very, very disconnected the way we've talked about this from the fact that essentially what Hobby Lobby got the right to do is refuse to give a part of legally required compensation to the people who work for it. Right. And one of the ways that Hobby Lobby was able to get the upper hand in terms of the politics of this was that they were able to make the case that the workers were with them, right? That this was a great community of people and they're all united in like, you know, their core religious values. And that was like, the company was like a family, right? And we've seen this with Walmart. So much like Walmart. Right. And it's the same kind of paternalism, right? And, And that is one thing that labor solidarity if it's good for anything, that's that's something that labor solidarity can militate against yeah. in a workplace, and that was completely, sadly, absent yeah. here. So. Well, there was one more Supreme Court decision that came out in this hellish swath of Supreme Court decisions um, in the last week and a half, two weeks. Um, the Noel Canning decision, which actually will affect the National Labor Relations Board. Um, Right. Michelle, can you tell us a little <laughs> bit more about what that's actually going to do? Right, as I try to make my awkward segue into this. Um, yeah. No, I mean, it's, it, well, the thing, too, is that, you know, most labor disputes are not adjudicated at the Supreme Court, right? <laughs> I mean, like, you know, we can talk a lot about the sort of taking each decision to its logical extreme and how this might impact workers, but a lot of the bread and butter issues are decided kind of through this, on this administrative kind of bureaucratic level, right? right? And when the National Labor Relations Board, I mean, even when it's functioning, it's pretty damn... It's pretty damn, damn non-functioning. Yeah, it's pretty damn, like, catatonic. So, I mean, the fact that it's just uh, now, um, you know, the the what Noel Canning did was it... it I mean, they, they turned it into sort of an issue of executive power, but essentially, like... Um, you know, removed the right to do these recess appointments that right. would have at least kept the board functioning yeah. during during recess periods as a matter of just political pragmatism, right? right. And yet it was spun into this thing like, oh, it's a presidential power grab. But the fact of the matter is, as a result of this ruling, and even before, right, I mean, um, the Senate confirmation process right. became a, a, a tool of obstructionism, right? right? And, and that this has only just enhanced that. And right. so, um, you know, the NLRB, for all its flaws, it was actually one place where, you know, non-union workers, right, yeah. could go with a grievance. Right. Um, and, right. And We've now, seen the NLRB rule in favor of Walmart workers, for right. instance. And, and, or and a lot some of the these... alt-worker, the labor centers, I mean, they've, they've yeah. taken their claims there. So, right. I mean, you know, when that apparatus is, is paralyzed, then what yeah. does it mean for you know, the true, really the rank and file everyday kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, in this case, so the, the National Labor Relations Board now has people on it who were confirmed by Congress, but the recess appointments, the decisions made by the people who were recess appointed have all been voided. Right. Right. 
it's essentially like they um, they kind of just categorically rejected the sort of package that Obama put forward of, right. of, of, of three um, different uh, of, of you know certain appointments that, that he wanted. And so, um, but um, actually, you know, Moshe Marvit, who's written on Noel Canning, he um, he remarked that you know the GOP is happy with a completely non-functioning board, just right. as much as it's happy with a board that's politically favorable to the GOP, right? right. So, I mean, a- again, it goes back to this obstructionism thing. Like, when, um, you know, the the opposition gets uh, just as much benefit from doing absolutely nothing than does from getting, you know, trying to actually make a, a political advancement um, in a certain, in a certain um, a, you know, bureaucracy or agency, then they're going to opt to just sit there, and that's, that could be what's going to happen. And now it's time for Arg. I wish I'd written that, where we talk about the pieces we saw over the past two weeks that we wish we had written but did not. Um, the pick for the piece that I wish I had written this week is from LadyEconomist.com, which is a very interesting blog run by you-know-who, Lady Economist. Um, this is a piece uh, called What's So Wrong with Teacher Tenure by uh, Dorothy, also known as Kate Bond. Uh, and she lays out the logic of teacher tenure, and I thought this was a really interesting explanation of um, the rationale behind uh, having a due process teacher tenure system in place um, in the teaching workforce, because I, I always find that when I'm debating education reform, teacher tenure is always one of those really sticky things to defend, right? It's like the, 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 the perennial argument is always, well, why should anyone have a job for life, right? And of course, you have to go through the process of explaining, no, this is not a job for life. It's what we call due process. Um, Something we wish that every worker did have. Right. Um, and she actually makes a good point, which is that in the teaching profession specifically, um, experience does count for a whole hell of a lot. Right. And she actually notes, you know, surveying the literature in education economics time and again, research shows that huge gains are made to teaching experience in the first three to five years of teaching. So it turns out that experience has a greater impact on teaching effectiveness than things like advanced degrees, scores on teaching licensure tests, and class size. And of course, this argument is anathema to the neoliberal school reformers who say all you need is a, youth, a little youthful vim and vigor in the classroom and like a really super motivated 23-year-old and magic White. will happen right so um yes uh and so to the uh to the argument that you know teacher tenure is somehow discriminating against younger workers i would say that it you know like it's actually just as discriminatory in some way or more discriminatory to insist that uh, people who have accrued this experience who have shown the dedication to the profession to accrue that experience should not have that um that valued in their labor, right? And and that's all that teacher tenure ensures, and it doesn't ensure that they will never be fired. It only ensures that they are afforded, uh, you know, a priority in terms of um, having a full and fair review of any decision that impacts on their employment. Because ultimately, it makes sense for the system, too, right? If they're going to dismiss that teacher, there's a lot more riding on that one faculty member, right? And, and the other piece that I thought was interesting was um, also related to teacher tenure, and this is all coming in the wake of the uh, Vergara trial, which we discussed um, in a previous podcast, but um, it's discussing uh, basically what, uh, and it's written by Andrew Strom, and he's a counsel with uh, SEIU, and um, it's called In Defense of Last In, First Out, right? Um, And so 
the idea here is that, um, you know, why should uh, younger teachers get, uh, be the first to be laid off, right, or the, the ones with the least tenure? And it's related in the sense that it, um, it, it, allows for, um, it allows for some sort of fairness in the system. Otherwise, there's no real fair way to compare across schools that have vastly unequal um, sets of resources, vastly uh, unequal school populations, and very different demographics, right? So, um, you know, seniority, for better or worse, is, is probably the, the only benchmark we can have uh, to ensure some modicum of a level playing field when evaluating teachers. And if we're going to talk about inequality in the system, let's address the inequality between schools. Right? So. Um, so the piece that I wish I had written this week is by friend of the podcast, friend of reporters everywhere. In fact, um, Esther Kaplan, who in her day job is the editor of the Investigative Fund at the Nation Institute, and in her spare time, apparently, um, wrote this very, very deeply researched and reported, beautifully written, heartbreaking piece for the Virginia Quarterly Review called Losing Sparta, and it's on the closure of a factory in Sparta, Tennessee, on the logic of outsourcing, something that corporations seem to have taken for granted for a while now, and of course what happens to a community when the union jobs disappear. Um, this piece is interesting in several ways. She talks not just to the usual characters, the workers who have lost their jobs, but in this case to a former anti-union consultant whose aim to keep manufacturing in the U.S. led her to lean production expertise and then to helping to run this Sparta plant. And eventually when the company that owned it, um, Philips, proposed to close it and move to Mexico, um, this woman pr proposed to buy the plant, um, coming up with a business plan that got her millions in investments and that the company tossed aside without a second thought. Beyond just looking at the devastation in this piece, Kaplan comes to question the entire cost-saving logic at the base of so many of these decisions to ship production overseas or across the border. The wages might be lower, the workers easier to exploit, the environmental prote protections skimpier or non-existent, but does it actually save companies money? And she amasses a whole bunch of data that says, maybe not. I'll just quote her to finish this up. Combined, this research hints at a radical idea that offshoring has simply become a reflex. And if that's true, all the lean manufacturing and just-in-time production and automation and retraining and two-tier pay scales in the world won't be enough to save American production jobs. So we've tried to be cheerful most of this episode today, yeah. um, or at least give you a, a more optimistic take on some of this right. week's news, but I'll end with a depressing story. Um, but it really is a beautiful piece. You should definitely read it. We will put links to all of those pieces at the Descent Magazine website. As always, you can email us with your story suggestions, what it's like in your local Hobby Lobby, um, any questions that you have at, at belabored at descentmagazine.org. If you work at Hobby Lobby, if we you work at Hobby Lobby, we definitely want to hear from you. Belabored at descentmagazine.org. You can tweet at us at hashtag belabored. We will be back in two weeks. This life is hard, so hard I must go. Eight twin to five, we can't go. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Until next week, join us online using hashtag belabored.